The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter number 12. Luke chapter number 12. I do want to thank the administration, Dr. Shoemaker, Dr. Lands, Dr. Adkins for just the incredible hospitality while we have been here. And I, like I said, I'm humbled by this opportunity. I was born and raised in Pensacola, Florida. Both my parents came here to college. They met, got married, stayed on as staff and faculty. So I was born here. In fact, I was born in the Graf Clinic. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I was born in a local hospital, but I may as well have been born in the Graf Clinic. I had an ID number nine months before I was born. So I knew I was coming to PCC from the get-go. And I have... Um, Just thoroughly enjoyed being here. It's been a great time. All right, so let's get into our discussion. Like I said, um, just I'm so thrilled to be here, be able to present this material to you. Now you see here the title, Designer Evidence. So think about designer brands. When I say designer brands, does something pop into your mind? Maybe like Rolex, Gucci, Uh, Oakley's, depending on what type of accessories you like. When you think about these designer brands, have you ever looked up the prices of some of those things? Just out of curiosity, not, raise your hand if you've ever looked up prices, like on a Rolex watch. It was just because you were curious, not because you were going to buy one. But when you think about the prices of things, why in the world are they so expensive? Well, if you think about it, these are works of a master craftsman. They have been fine-tuned to function correctly, and they have a lasting value that can be passed on to successive generations. They've been designed with a specific form and function while being wrapped in immense beauty. Wait, think through that again. That sounds almost like we're talking about the creatures that God has created, right? He he has wrapped his beauty and his design, and so what we're going to look at today is design. So if you've got Luke 12 in your Bible, look at verse number 27. Verse number 27 says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now those lilies, those are just wildflowers that are growing along the streets of Israel. They're just common flowers. And yet what God is saying is, hey, if you take some time to look at these flowers and you study these flowers... The design and order and complexity in these flowers is greater than Solomon at the height of his reign. And Solomon's reign was a magnificent reign. Um, and, And so just the things that God has created, like a simple wildflower, shows design and evidence far greater than humans can even imagine. So where does design come from? This design in nature that we see, it's unmistakable that it's there. You look around, you see design. Just look at the solar system, the design of the solar system. You look at the arrangement of flowers on a petal, or excuse me, flowers, petals on a flower. Yeah, that's how it works. I did teach biology, I promise. (laughs) Um, Even Charles Darwin himself wondered about this idea of design and where it comes from. And so it really depends on your worldview. Dr. Han did a great job laying a foundation for you guys yesterday with the difference between a biblical worldview and a humanistic worldview. And so when we think about this, your worldview really matters. The way you answer this question, where does design in nature come from, 
depends on the worldview that you have. Like I said, Charles Darwin questioned this idea of design. He said, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Now, for sake of not taking this out of context, let me give you a little bit more from the quote of this passage. He says, reason tells me that if numerous gradations from simple and imperfect eye to one complex and perfect can be shown to exist, each grade being useful to its possessor, as is certainly the case, if further the eye ever varies and the variations be inherited, as is likewise certainly the case, and if such variations should be useful to any animal under changing conditions of life, then the difficulty of believing that a perfect and complex eye could be formed by natural selection, though insuperable by our imagination, should not be considered as subversive to this theory. So what is he saying here? Well, obviously Charles Darwin did not have a biblical worldview. He held to a humanistic worldview, that there is no supernatural, natural explanations for everything. So what he's saying is, really, this is Darwinian evolution. Small, gradual changes over long periods of time being inherited, small changes being inherited and being passed on to the next generation so it can be further built upon. And then more change taking place, which is further built upon. And so he's saying, while it may seem absurd that a human eye, with everything it's capable of doing, could have evolved just through natural trance processes, he then, through his worldview of humanism, says, well, it had to happen that way. The eye formed through all these small successive changes over millions of years. So if you have a humanistic worldview then, what they say is, hey, natural selection, this process of small changes over long periods of time, it gives the appearance of design. So it's not actually designed, it just looks like it's designed. It's kind of crazy for us to think of that, right? I mean, when you see design, I mean, look at this podium. When I see design, there's a designer behind this podium, Jordan Jekyll, fantastic woodworker. He built this. And so the design is, is evident that there is a designer. So from the understanding of a biblical worldview, that's what we know. We know the design comes from that designer. And so as we contrast this humanistic worldview with the biblical worldview, how should you think? We know as a Christian the word of God ought to be our final say, our authority, the lens with which we, uh, through which we view everything around us, including the design that we see in the creation. So that Rolex watch that maybe you would like to have, but you definitely can't afford, especially as a college student, um, that Rolex watch, it was designed by a designer, just like the creation of the world that we see around us was designed by the master designer, God. So does the Bible say anything about design? Of course it does. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? It tells us who that designer is. That designer is God. Romans 1.20, I love this verse. Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What's he telling us? He's saying no one's going to have an excuse one day when they stand before God 
at the judgment seat, no one's going to have an excuse and say, I did not know there was a God. He is clearly seen in the creation, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that we know there is a God when we look at the design that we see in nature. By the way, that's not enough. Just recognizing there's a God is not enough for salvation. You have to know who that God is, who that creator is, Jesus Christ, and then accept him as your personal savior. That's why missions is so important. That's why witnessing to the lost is so important. There are people that are out there that they see, hey, there's a God. They want to know who that God is, but if no one's there to tell them, how are they going to know? It's not going to be enough to get them into heaven. So do what God asks you to do. If he says and the Holy Spirit pricks your heart, hey, tell that person about God. Do it. If, someone, if, if maybe missions conference happens and the Lord is pricking your heart, hey, go, go on this mission field. Do it. There are people out there that need to know who that creator is so they can have an eternal home in heaven. Psalm 19.1, we all know this verse. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Okay, you think about the stars. I love when uh, God is in Genesis 1 doing the creation. He talks to all of fancy like about the, uh, the creation of the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. But then he just tacks on this little phrase at the end, oh, and he made the stars also. And yet the stars are incredible. Any of you live out in the country where there's no light pollution? Okay, you go outside on a crystal clear night and you look up into the heavens, it makes you feel small. It makes you feel insignificant, right? Why? Because God just spoke these into existence. And so the heavens are clearly showing this natural revelation, this design that God Almighty has put into his creation. Uh, the new James Webb Telescope that was uh, sent out into space to get pictures, the goal of that was to try to figure out, hey, what happened in the beginning of our universe? Let's look for evidences that show us how the Big Bang happened. Let's look for new stars forming. I'll tell you what, it's never going to find that. They're, those aren't ever going to be seen. New stars don't form. They were all created during the creation week. We're not going to see how this Big Bang happened because there was no Big Bang. But what that will show us is just the expanse of our universe. It'll show us more beauty in the creation that we can then look at and say, wow, we have such an awesome, powerful God. And, and what's that supposed to do? When we look at the creation, we're supposed to stand in awe of our creator and, and just marvel at how powerful he is. Like the name Elohim suggests in Genesis chapter one, he is a God of majestic power. And we ought to do that as we view his creation. Job chapter 12, 7 through 10 says, But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? So he's saying there, hey, Go to the creation. Study the creation. It's going to teach you things. And what that's teaching you is that, hey, God is the one who created all this, like Romans 1.20 said. We're without excuse because we are clearly seeing God in that creation. Colossians 1.17 tells us a, a, a similar thing to the idea of, hey, it's, it's in God's hand that everything exists, like the last verse here, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Your breath, your life, not just yours, but the life and breath of every creature is in God's hand. 
Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. That means He is sustaining life. As soon as He lets His hand go, life's going to cease to exist. So be thankful God is holding your breath in His hand. And He can do that because He's an all-powerful Creator. So, really, one of my favorite aspects of science is animals. Uh, Growing up, I always loved animals. If you were to scroll through my camera roll which for some of you that might be a dangerous thing to do. Um, If you were to scroll through my camera roll, there are three main things, main groups of pictures that you'll see. You'll see pictures of my family, because I love my family. You'll see pictures of a lot of animals. Um, You'll see kind of a combination of the two, my family with animals. Most of those are snakes that we are catching on the roads when we're driving out at night. Um, And also the pictures of food, right? I mean, I'm a guy. I didn't get sick six by not eating, so I like food. And so those are some of the main pictures that you would see. And so what I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about is just some of those designer creatures, those things that have the stamp of design on it, things that you can see God's fingerprints all over, things that he's created that are functioning how he intended them to function. They're functioning beautifully in the environment in which he placed them. And so let's look at some of these creatures. We'll start with the humpback whale. Okay, humpback whales are big. Don't know if you knew that. Um, Have any of you ever seen a humpback whale in person? You've done like a whale tour? I have not yet. So if you want to finance that, sure, send it to me. I'll go go watch whales. Um, But when you think about the size of a humpback whale, they grow to 50 feet in length. Okay, how big is 50 feet? School bus. So just think of a massive school bus swimming around in the water. They weigh up to 40 tons. And look, you've got a picture of a humpback whale breaching. A school bus-sized creature weighing 40 tons is coming completely out of the water. That is impressive power, right? In order to drive that impressive power, they have to have an impressive tail, and they do. That tail fin is up to 18 feet wide. Also, that's very large. And so it needs to be that large to create enough force in order to allow that whale to be propelled out of the water. If you look at the flipper, the top right picture there, on the humpback whale, um, it it seems a little abnormally large. Like most whales, if you look at the flipper length in proportion to the body length, they're not that long. Um, This one specifically, uh, if you look at the genus name of the humpback whale, the genus name is Megaterra. So if you're familiar with like Latin type names, Mega means big, right? Terra means wing. So these were named because of their large flipper that they have there. So obviously God doesn't create something without a purpose. So this must have some sort of purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, that purpose is intended to help it maneuver through the water. This is a much more maneuverable whale than any of the other whales um, because of that large fin. It's able to maneuver much more readily because that fin is able to catch more water and it can turn much easier as a result of that. By the way, you'll notice on the front edge of that fin, there's some bumps. Scientists have recently started studying those bumps on the fins and recognize that there is a mathematical relationship to the positioning of those bumps. How does that evolve by random chance processes over millions of years? Mathematical precision. Like, some of us don't like math, and yet God's put math into the creation. We should like math. We should study math. And so that mathematical precision is important because those bumps are actually helping to reduce the turbulence that are coming off of the fins of that whale. 
The reason they need such a long fin, the reason they need this extra maneuverability is because of how they hunt. Um, humpback whales hunt actually in groups, and they do a process called bubble netting. So what they will do, they will actually swim around a group of krill. Krill are small shrimp-like creatures, real small, like tiny, and yet some of the largest creatures are, are eating so much of them that they get to be these enormous sizes. And so this bubble netting, they'll all swim around this group of krill and they'll start down low and they'll just start blowing bubbles out of their blowhole. So they're just releasing air. All these bubbles are obviously rising to the surface and when the krill see those bubbles, they think it's like some sort of trap and they can't get through it. Now they could, they could just swim right through them, but they see the bubbles, they're scared, so they all start collectively gathering together. And so all of these humpback whales are uh, swimming in a circle, releasing bubbles, getting that circle tighter and tighter until you've got this massive ball of just tons and tons of krill all collectively together. And then they'll take turns swimming up underneath, opening their big mouth, getting lots and lots of krill on each bite. And so it's a, it's a fascinating thing to watch and it's just one of the creations that God has given it. How does it know to do that? How, how can evolution explain the knowledge of an organism to be able to say, hey, let's use bubbles to trap fish and krill. It, it can't. Evolution can't do that through small successive changes over millions of years. Another interesting fact about the humpback whale, and any whale for that matter, is there's not any connection between the nose and the mouth. Now, there is um, a documentary, let's see, it was, it was done by Pixar, about a little clownfish. Uh, Finding Nemo, yeah, that one. Remember when they get inside the humpback whale's mouth and then he blows them out of the blowhole? They lied. That can't happen. There's no connection there. And so um, that's obviously the design that God has intended for these creatures. But what evolution teaches about whales is that they evolved from land mammals. Okay, think about land mammals. A, a bear, for instance. They have a connection between the nose and the mouth. Um, we have a connection between the nose and the mouth, right? You ever been sitting with someone at lunch and you made them laugh while they're drinking? Yeah, what happens? Fluid comes out their nose. Why? Because there's that connection. So in order to have evolution be true and these creatures with connections between their nose and mouth to be able to separate that connection to move into the water to become the whales, think about how those intermediate forms would do. They're not going to be great, greatly successful, are they, with a half-connected nose to mouth uh, and then finally separating it completely? No, it could not have happened that way. And so that separation is important for these whales so they can open up their mouth, take a big gulp of krill without drowning, right? None of that's going to get up into their nose and get into their lungs. So God's designed it for that purpose. Humpback whales also migrate a long way. Um, they're, they're off the coast of Alaska. They will migrate to Hawaii in order to, to nurse their young, to birth their young. And so they migrate vast distances. And as they migrate these long distances, they communicate with other humpback whales within the same ocean basin. And so many, all, all these blue whales, not blue whales, humpback whales are going to be able to emit sounds, clicks, whistles, things like that. I'm sure you've heard some of those before. But only the males sing. These, these males are actually making music. There have been musicians that have studied whale song and put them on like staff paper. And they are in a very consistent pattern with a specific rhythm. 
they're singing. They're literally singing in order to attract their mates or in order to fend off other males that are in the same area as, and they're territorial because of that. So very rhythmic, very melodic sound. And those whale songs can be heard for vast distances. The songs themselves up to 20 miles. Some, however, of the lower frequency sounds that these whales make, lower than human hearing can hear, can actually travel the entire ocean basin. So they could be talking and communicating with whales that are in Alaska while they're in Hawaii. It's like they have cell phones, right? Hey, just call up your friend. No, they just sing or they just make these sounds in the water and it travels great distances under the water. The reason for that is because of the way God's designed water. Okay, water is an amazing, amazing uh, molecule, is it not? It's made of hydrogen and oxygen, both of which are highly flammable. And yet, put them together, it's what we use to put fires out. And so, the way God's designed the water in, in any aquatic system, whether it be a lake, whether it be a, an ocean, there is going to be a temperature change as you decrease through the water column. As temperature changes, that changes the density of the water. As the density changes, the pressure changes. All of those changes that are happening in the water is what allows these long uh, distance communications between each of the whales. So, the way the water's designed, as you go down in the water column, there'll be a certain point you reach where the temperature starts to change drastically. That we call that a thermocline, thermoheat, so there's a difference in temperature. And then as you go down further, there will be a point where that drastic change suddenly levels off. And that's the, the lower thermocline, once again, a change in temperature. And so what happens as these whales are singing, they're emitting sound waves. The sound waves are, because of the density, because of the pressure, being bent downward, down towards the bottom thermocline. When they hit that bottom thermocline, because once again, there's a change in pressure, there's a change in temperature, it actually starts to rise back upward and goes to the top thermocline. And then it rises or goes back down. And so it's constantly just going through this, what they call a sound channel, due to the way God's designed the water molecules. So he didn't just design the cool whale to be able to communicate long distances, he designed the water so that they could communicate long distances. So whales sing. How much more should we, as God's crown of creation, mankind, sing and praise the one who created us? All right, what about the giraffe? I'm kind of partial to tall things. I mean, I'm kind of tall. So I have to talk about the giraffe. You know giraffes have really long necks, right? They are mammals. All mamals, except for manatees and dugongs, have seven vertebrae in their neck. You have seven vertebrae in your neck. Same with the giraffe. Only seven vertebrae. They're just massive vertebrae. And these can be very large. Male bull giraffes can reach up to 18 feet tall, weigh about 2,300 pounds, and they have that long neck. They've got a long tongue as well. How many of you have ever fed a giraffe at a zoo? You've been up close and personal with the long tongue. Their tongue is prehensile, meaning it can grab. They like to forage in the trees, in the canopies. So they need that long neck, the long legs to reach the tops of the trees, and then they use that long tongue to grasp leaves and pull them off. Um, so having a prehensile tail, uh, not tail, tongue would be very handy. Don't you think that'd be handy? Like when was the last time you ordered french fries at McDonald's and you're driving and you're like, how do, I can't, so, so you either drive, 
and like dip them with one hand and you're not really paying attention to what you're doing because you're trying to dip it in the ketchup. Or you use both hands and you drive with your knees. How many knee drivers? Okay, I learned that from my dad. So eat your ice cream with your knees. But imagine having a prehensile tongue, all problem solved, right? You hold it with one hand, you've got one hand on the wheel and you're able to just grab french fries. That would make life so much easier. But God didn't design us with that. We don't need it. We have hands. We can put food to our mouths. But the giraffes do. And so very awesome design by our creator. But if you think about the fact this is an 18-foot-tall creature, the heart is not in the neck, it's in the body. It has to be able to pump blood up to the brain. That means it has to be strong, and it's very powerful. Very powerful heart, can weigh up to two to three pounds, so it's a big organ. And it's pumping with a lot of force. There's high, high blood pressure in a giraffe. If you ever go to the doctor and they say, hey, you have uh, giraffe blood pressure, maybe get your will in order because it's not a good thing. Uh, their blood pressure is around 300 over 180. We're supposed to be 120 over 180, right? Uh, not 180. Sorry, the nursing faculty is screaming at me right now. 120 over 80. Um, and so very high blood pressure. And the way God's designed them, it it's necessitates that. Their skin is extra tight around their body. That puts more pressure on the arteries and the veins, allowing for higher blood pressure so that blood can get to the heart where it needs. So with that powerful pump, it makes sense they need that to pump blood against gravity up to their brain 18 feet tall, right? They need that. But all of a sudden, when this giraffe decides, hey, I'm thirsty, and he bends over to get a drink. By the way, if you see me drinking from a water fountain, that's like, I kind of look like that. When he bends down to get that drink, now his head is down. His heart is pumping with gravity. Powerful beat. This blood is going to rush to the brain and burst his brain brain blood vessels. So the first time he ever bends down to get a drink, his his blood vessels are bursting and he falls over, dying. And he's thinking to himself, man, I need to evolve something. So that way, every time I bend over to get a drink, I'm not bursting my blood vessels in my brain. No, he's dead, right? Dead creatures don't evolve, so he can't further evolve like he's supposed to. But does he die? No. Why? Because God's designed those arteries going up to his brain with a series of valves that as soon as he bends over, those valves begin to close, reducing the pressure of that blood going to the brain. But there still is enough pressure in that last beat that would be able to burst his blood vessels in his brain if he didn't have what uh, this, this series of blood vessels at the base of his brain that act kind of like a sponge. So that last pump is going up into the base of his brain and it's slowly swelling with that blood and it's allowing the, the brain vessels to be perfectly fine. So he's drinking and he sees a lion. So he gets up and he takes off running, right? He takes three steps, passes out, falls on the ground. The lion is feasting upon him and he's thinking to himself, man, I should really evolve something so that way when I uh, stand up from getting a drink, I don't pass out and die. No, he's dead. He's not going to evolve. And so everything had to be there for him to be able to just get a drink, much less survive and much less be able to get the food and nourishment for himself and be able to reproduce. God's designed him with everything that he needs from the very beginning. Next animal is the red fox. Very intelligent. Uh, If you've ever raised chickens, You've probably had to deal with foxes. They're smart creatures. Um, And these foxes have very good hearing. In fact, they can hear the flight of a crow at about 0.5 kilometers. 
like just the bird flying, they can hear that half a kilometer away. They can hear the squeaking of a mice at about 100 meters. That's 330 feet. So incredible hearing, which is very important when there is snow cover on the ground because the animals that they eat live under the snow. Now, you can see the top left diagram illustrates what we call the subnivian zone under the snow. Uh, obviously, mice and voles are going to be able to burrow up through the snow and have exits so they can scurry around on top. But most of the winter, they actually spend their time underneath the snow. They've got tunnels uh, under the snow that they run around in. So this fox is trying to find food under up to 18 inches of snow. Well, the hearing is important for that. Uh, and if you watch the way that these are going to hunt, when they are walking up, they're sneaking around, they hear something, they'll actually cock their head to the side just a little bit. What they're doing is allowing the distance between the sound and both ears to be slightly different. Now you think, okay, if we did that, if we turned our head just a slightly, slight bit, we wouldn't be able to tell really the difference between each ear. But God's designed them to be able to. So it's acting like it's a triangulation allowing them to pinpoint where that mouse is under the snow. But it goes beyond that. They also, scientists have, have studied over about 600 pouncing attempts of these red foxes in snow. They've recorded all sorts of data, one of those being what direction was the fox facing when they leaped, when they made their pouncing attempt. And what they found is that whenever they were in the northeasterly direction, they were successful 74% of the time. They caught the mouse, they caught the vole 74% of the time. When they were completely 180 degrees from that, so the southwesterly direction, they were 60% successful. Any other direction, that success dropped to 18%. So the scientists are thinking like, what in the world is going on here? It, it, there's, there's some axis that they're lining up with. What they concluded is that they're actually able to detect Earth's magnetic field. So they're creeping up to this creature, they're tilting their head, getting kind of a triangulation with the difference in distances to their ears, but then they're actually looking for that sweet spot where the sound is lining up with the magnetic pole. And that gives them really, they know at that point they're a specific distance away. So their pounce can be the same every single time, and they're highly successful as a result. We can't even fathom being able to sense Earth's magnetic field, right? If I were to get someone up here and spin them around 20 times and say, okay, point north. They would only, if, they'd only be right if they got lucky, right? Because we can't sense magnetic field. And yet, this creature is hunting with it. There are many other creatures that can sense Earth's magnetic field. They use it for migration, for um, homing, things like that. But these ones are the only ones known of to hunt with Earth's magnetic field. How does that evolve? These creatures are going to die off the first winter if they don't already have that in place. So small successive changes over millions of years, like Darwinian evolution teaches, aren't going to be sufficient to allow the changes necessary for these creatures to even make it past generation one. And yet we have them today, because God's fit them for their environment with everything that they need. Think about the firefly. Any of you ever used to catch fireflies and like break off their abdomen and like smear them on your face as face paint? How cruel, why would you do that? Because we were kids back then, right? <laughs> so fireflies, you think about these. They create their own light. Now, we know about fireflies, right? So we're like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. We know fireflies, they make their own light. Um, but what's happening is actually a chemical reaction taking place in their abdomen. 
They've got two chemicals, one called luciferin, one called luciferase, a protein and an enzyme. And all of you people taking chemistry, you know proteins and enzymes, enzymes are going to cause changes to proteins. So when the enzyme luciferase binds luciferin, it causes a reaction breaking luciferin and generating light. Now this is not just any light. This light is almost 100% pure light energy. Very, very small fraction is actually lost as heat. And, and you think about our scientists that have put all these different lights together. Even the best LED lights lose a larger fraction of, of that energy in the form of heat. So how does it do that? And, and how would it be able to have all of these things there from the beginning and, and still be around? It has to have it all from the beginning, right? And so you, you've got to have both chemicals. You've got to have a place where they're stored separately so it's not always lighting. He needs a way to figure out how to combine them whenever he wants to. Um, and so let's say he happened to evolve all the mutations and get all of those things necessary to have what I just said. Yet he hasn't evolved a transparent abdomen yet. Well, is he ever going to mate and be able to pass on his genes to the next generation and future evolution happen? No. So God's designed him with everything that he needs from the very beginning in order for him to exist at all. And so fireflies, while they're just a small beetle, they scream the design of God. They scream the fact that there is a designer. All right, last thing I'll discuss in the last couple minutes I have is the bacterial flagellum. So you see there a picture of a bacteria. They're small, okay? Okay, let me get you. Oops, wrong way. There's a little bit bigger. The flagellum is that thing sticking off the back. This is basically a propeller that allows the bacteria to move through its environment. Okay, that's advantageous for a bacteria, because most of the time they just sit there, they do nothing, they wait for you to touch them and move them to somewhere else, right? And that's where sicknesses come from. Um, but this flagellum gives them the ability to move around a little bit. In order for this flagellum to function, there are 40 different proteins necessary. 40. That's a lot for a functioning flagellum. So if you think about this creature through the lens of natural selection and evolution, small successive changes, let's say it happened to evolve five of them, is it going to be functional? No. Is it going to be passed on by natural selection? No. It has to have all 40 from the beginning for it to function at all. And it, here you kind of see a model of what it would look like, and that grayscale picture is an electron microscope picture of it. All right, some of you that are mechanics out here or mechanical engineers or things like that, you're looking at that and saying, hey, that looks familiar. I think in like cars, right, you see things that are similar to that. That's a diagram of a CV axle. We didn't even know bacterial flagellum existed when we created these CV axles. And yet, there is evidence of design here on this, um, even something that is microscopic. God loves variety, he loves design, he's placed that design in his creation. And so, as, as student body here at PCC, when you are walking across campus, you're seeing the flowers, you're seeing the, the squirrels that are everywhere on campus, don't just ignore them, look at them. Observe them and see the fingerprint of the master designer on those creatures. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College 
empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.